We're continuing our series in the book of Nehemiah. In a Peanuts cartoon, it seemed that Snoopy was having the time of his canine life on a frozen pond. On his bare paws, he was spinning and twirling on the ice with the most satisfied look imaginable. Then suddenly his nemesis, Lucy, shows up with her famous frown and glare stare. That's not skating. That's sliding. She screamed at him with her hands on her hips. You don't have any skates on. You're just sliding on your feet. That is not skating. Snoopy glided to a stop in front of her, somewhat startled. He began to slump as she continued her lecture. She said, skating is when you use skates. You don't have skates on, so you're not skating. You're just sliding. By now, poor Snoopy was just devastated. He sunk away toward the side of the pond, thinking, how could I have been so stupid? The last scene finds Snoopy off the pond, sitting alone on a bench, saying to himself, and I thought I was having fun. <laughs> Nehemiah had started this Jerusalem reconstruction project, and all the people were together in a coordinated, coordinated effort, building, and the wall was taking shape. And Nehemiah probably thought he was starting to have fun. And then some Lucy-like characters showed up and started harassing him. Nehemiah and his men were there to rebuild that decimated wall around Jerusalem since it had earlier been torn down and burned to the ground under the third Babylonian invasion. Nehemiah was anxious to rebuild that wall and the gates that were part of that wall so Jerusalem could be fortified and protected. This message is the first part of a lesson on the subject of critics and criticism because Nehemiah experienced them both. Understand there is no leadership apart from criticism. All those that lead, those that manage people are criticized. Criticism is just an occupational hazard. It's just part of the territory. If we happen to assume a position where we are responsible uh, to lead others, then we are subjecting ourselves to criticism. And Nehemiah was no exception to that statement. Nehemiah had his critics, and two of his principal critics were a man named Sobalad, Sanballat, and his associate named Tobiah. Sanballat and Tobiah. We actually met them in an earlier message. Some of us might remember this, Nehemiah 2, verse 10, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, meaning when these men heard about the proposed reconstruction of Jerusalem, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Sambalad and Tobiah opposed this project. Please notice something. Nehemiah chapter 3, we studied last time and the time before that. Nehemiah 3 is actually a parenthesis. Nehemiah chapter 3 is a strategic parenthesis inserted between chapter 2 and chapter 4. It is inserted there to summarize the entire reconstruction process. So in essence, the narrative from chapter 2, where we are introduced to Sambal and Tobiah, then skips over chapter 3 and starts up again in chapter 4. That means the passage we are about to read from Nehemiah 4, starting at verse 1, is actually a continuation from the last verse of Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 20. So we read to the end of chapter 2, skip over chapter 3, pick the narrative up there in chapter 4 and verse 1. Um, 
Before we go on and describe what those men were doing to um, Nehemiah, we need to do, mention some basic historical background on just who these men were. In verse 10, notice the word Horonite. The verse read, Sembalad the Horonite. Sembalad was from Horonaim. Horonaim. So a Horonite was a resident from Horonaim. Horonaim was a town located in Moab. That meant Sembalad was a Moabite. And Tobiah, his associate, was an Ammonite. That is a significant fact we cannot ignore. Genesis 19 is a phenomenal chapter, often controversial. God had judged, just judged the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19 verse 24 reads that God rained down fire and brimstone on those cities. Brimstone is the biblical name for sulfur. Sulfur is found in hot springs. Sulfur is found in volcanic fissures. Volcanic fissures are those vents in the actual volcano where lava seeps through. Sulfur is extremely flammable, so fire and brimstone is essentially burning sulfur. And that was the combination, burning sulfur, that God rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah until there was literally nothing left. Just before that destruction, though, two angelic guests came to the home of Lot and warned Lot to evacuate Sodom, warned him that judgment was near and about to happen, and so go. Lot and his family started to evacuate Sodom, Lot's wife turned around in disobedience to God and was turned into a pillar of salt. That left Lot and his two virgin daughters. The three of them together were then able to escape Sodom and found refuge in a cave near Zor. It was inside that cave that Lot committed heinous sin that would have long-lasting consequences. Lot's daughters actually seduced him on consecutive nights. Genesis 19, verse 36, Thus the daughters of Lot were with child, notice, by their father. Each one of these young women, wanting to perpetuate the family line, enticed Lot to drink until he was intoxicated, and then went in on separate successive nights, engaged in sexual relations with him, and as a result, he impregnated them both. Verse 37, The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. Notice, he is the father of the Moabites to this day. Verse 38, and the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. Ben-Ami, he is the father of the people of Ammon, meaning the Ammonites to this day. Lot committed incest with each one of his daughters and impregnated them. And as a direct consequence of that sin, two entire nations of godless people descended from Lot. The Moabites were descended from Lot and his first incestuous act. The Ammonite people were descendants from Lot and his second incestuous sin. Now let's put all the pieces of this puzzle together. Sambalad was a, to a Moabite and Tobiah was an Ammonite, meaning that those men were both, in essence, actual genealogical descendants from Lot and his incestuous sin. Think through this. Lot and his daughters committed this sin at about 1900 B.C., although that exact date 
is debatable. We aren't certain. That's an estimate. 1900 B.C. is 19 centuries before Christ. Nehemiah chapter 2 and 4 happened around four and a half centuries before Christ. That means Sambalat and Tobiah were harassing Nehemiah some 14 and a half centuries after Lot's original sin. That situation is teaching us something. Notice, sin can have ongoing consequences. Sin can have ongoing, prolonged, and sometimes generational consequences. Sambalad and Tobiah represented some of the residual ongoing consequences from Lot's sin, meaning that that initial incestuous sin was still creating problems for the inhabitants of Jerusalem centuries after it was first committed. Let me expand on that. God can forgive all sin. There is now, not now an unpardonable sin. An unpardonable sin at this moment does not now exist. Meaning there is no sin God cannot forgive. But even sin that has been forgiven can still present continuing, ongoing, residual consequences for someone long after that sin has been forgiven. For instance, God can forgive alcohol abuse, um, secular psychiatrist. And psychologists teach that alcoholism is a disease. I would admit or agree that there could be a genetic component um, to that addiction, uh, meaning that some people are born inbred um, with a predisposition toward alcoholism. I understand that. But according to the Bible, excessive drinking, abusing alcohol, drunkenness is a sin. God, though, can forgive that sin. But even, even forgiving sin in the sense of eternal judgment, the fact remains even forgiven alcoholism can leave behind residual consequences. Forgiven alcoholism can still leave behind fragmented families. A criminal record for domestic violence. A DUI. Traffic fatalities. And cirrhosis of the liver. There are there are no eternal consequences in the afterlife from forgiven alcoholism, but there can now, in the present, still be ongoing problems resulting from that sin. Another example, I remember leading a man to Jesus um, in Southern California named Julio Perez. Two of his sons were committed members of our congregation. Julio was almost 70 when I had the privilege of praying with him to receive Christ. And he was, he was an inspiration to me. He never missed a service, so faithful. And even at his age, he still had an insatiable desire to learn. Uh, the problem was that Julio had smoked for five decades. Five decades. Part of that time, he had smoked two and three packs a day. He had a serious addiction. Once he became a Christian, God created in him a desire not to smoke. Uh, a want not to smoke. And so he stopped. I'm, I'm assuming it was difficult extremely difficult, but he stopped. He actually stopped a five-decade-long addiction. But the sad part is that although Julio Perez stopped smoking because he had had that habit for so long, he contracted emphysema. One of the most agonizing things I had to do was to go into his hospital room and see him as he struggled to breathe. And then at the end, I sat beside, I sat at his bedside as he literally suffocated to death. And after that experience, I cannot believe someone would actually want to smoke and chance contracting that disease. Now, some of my friends would argue that an occasional cigar to celebrate something is harmless, and I suppose it could be, but 
cramming tobacco leaves into someone's mouth and then setting them on fire and then doing that on a consistent basis is essentially suicide. It has been determined that every cigarette you smoke takes 11 minutes off someone's life. And don't even be foolish enough to even consider vaping. That's beyond ridiculous. This lesson from this situation in Genesis chapter 9 and then Nehemiah chapter 2 and 4 is that although God forgives sin, there can still be residual negative consequences from that sin. Both now in the present and ongoing and sometimes on into the future. Some time ago in another congregation, I had a young woman come to me. Her mother and father were committed Christians. She was raised in that environment. And at age 16, she rebelled against parental authority. She thought she knew better than mom and dad, as so often happens. So she left high school, and she left home. And she decided she would cohabitate with an older man she wasn't married to. She had a child from that man out of wedlock. She then married this man, And the marriage deteriorated until life became unbearable. Hell on earth. He was hyper-controlling. He was abusive. She claimed to have been a Christian since childhood. And although she knew better, she had ignored people's advice to avoid this man. And now she was married to him and she regretted it. She said to me, I want out of this marriage so bad. I am so afraid of him. He terrifies me and I don't know what to do. God can forgive us. If we're indiscreet and foolish, just as God forgave this young woman after she repented, but if we ignore Christian counsel and we rebel against God's instructions and do our own thing, although we can confess that sin as a Christian and receive parental forgiveness from God, sometimes we are still going to get up each morning and stare into the face of the consequences from that forgiven sin. The point is that sin can cause reoccurring, ongoing problems. Even though Lot's sin originated in Genesis 19, it was still creating problems for Nehemiah in the form of Lot's future descendants, Sambalat and Tobiah. Verse 1, But it so happened when Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. Symbolic was infuriated. He was a pagan person. He had a strange Babylonian name that meant moon god has given life. Strange. Symbolic was also the governor of Samaria, and he wanted to control Jerusalem for himself. That was probably the primary reason he was upset at Nehemiah for starting to rebuild Jerusalem. He felt as though Nehemiah had intruded on his personal plans for Jerusalem. And so Symbolic was upset at what he perceived as interference from Nehemiah. I want us to notice something interesting in this passage. Both Sambalad and Tobiah used defensive mechanisms. Both of them. There were two separate defensive mechanisms mentioned in this section in verses 2 and 3. Sambalad used the first one in verse 2, and then his associate Tobiah used the second one in verse 3. Notice the first of those defense mechanisms. Verse 1, one more time. But it so happened when Sambalad heard that we were rebuilding the wall, Nehemiah and his crews, that he was furious and very indignant. Indignant is severe anger and rage caused from perceived unfairness and wrongdoing. So Sambalad perceived that what Nehemiah was doing was wrong, unfair to him. And notice, and mocked the Jews. Sambalad made fun of and ridiculed the Jewish construction crews. Verse 2. 
And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish stones that are burned? Uh, remember, the people were using those charred and burnt stones that had you know, been part of the devastation from the Babylonian invasion, part of the ruins that were remaining, and used those same stones after cleaning them off and used them in reconstructing the wall. So Samballat started to ridicule Nehemiah and his men. I might add that this particular technique is still being used. There are even books on psychological warfare in the corporate boardroom. There is this psyching out the competition through constant ridicule and put-downs. Psychologists tell us that this first form of defensive mechanism that is mentioned here is called reaction formation. Reaction formation. Notice the definition. Reaction formation is where someone reacts on the outside the exact opposite of how he feels on the inside. This is where someone reacts on the outside the exact opposite of how he actually feels on the inside. Samballad was ridiculing Nehemiah. He said that these Jewish laborers were feeble and weren't capable of sorting through all that debris and rubble and then construct another wall. He was mocking them and belittling them for that effort to rebuild Jerusalem. Don't miss this. Ridicule is what critics sometimes substitute for reason. Ridicule is what critics sometimes substitute for reason. We see this all the time from the progressive left. Um, I try to have a balanced perspective on the culture, and so I expose myself to the left. The home page on my computer is MSNBC. <laughs> That's pretty crazy, isn't it? I want to hear what the other side says. Uh, the left's arguments, and I've heard them all, are nonsensical, unreasonable, irrational, and illogical. And when confronted with truth, objective truth, Instead of responding with intelligent, substantive argumentation, leftists tend to resort to ridicule and name-calling. Have you noticed? We're science deniers. We're racist. Oh, more than that, we're unredeemable racist. Our president would call us stupid SOBs, as he just did to a conservative journalist just this past Monday. And I heard his non-apologetic apology. This is the same man that at the beginning of his tenure announced if anyone in his administration dared to act disrespectful towards someone, he would fire them on the spot. Pretty sure he still has his job. That's called hypocrisy. And God hates it. If someone can't reason someone else out of a position, if we can't from an intellectual perspective, defend our position and be so convincing as to convince them to change their position, then what happens is some people, out of frustration, just resort to ridicule. And that's what Sam Ballard was doing. Sam Ballard had substituted laughter for logic. That was a defense mechanism because Sam Ballard was an insecure man. The reason both men were so defensive is because both men were insecure. Defensive people 
are most often insecure people. It might surprise us to know how many celebrities and famous household names actually are actually insecure and frightened people on the inside. These people react to personal criticism through sending out tweets, blasting the critic, saying things they would never have the courage to say to that critic in person. Even presidents have done that. That's a defensive mechanism. Understand it is sometimes necessary to defend ourselves. But most often, we don't have to respond to criticism and personal insults as we are going to see from Nehemiah's example. It's most often not necessary that we give someone a piece of our mind. I know people have given away so many pieces of their mind, there's not much mind left. Didn't have much mind to begin with, but that's what's happened. Because of his serious insecurity, Samballot was reacting in a defensive mode. On the surface, he sounded bold and confident and unafraid. But on the inside, he was unsure of himself. He was insecure and nervous and afraid. That is reaction formation, acting on the outside, the exact opposite of what he was feeling on the inside. Now, an another form of this, more benign, I assume, I can't count the times I've said to someone, I mean, I have a sense. I can just sense if something's not right. I believe it's discernment. It's not a spidey sense. don't have that. But it's discernment. Um, and I've sensed, I've approached someone. I said, look, something's not right. You, something's troubling you. I can, I can sense that. I just sense that. And, and so I said, is there, is there a problem? Are you all right? Uh, can you share with me what might be bothering you? And so often the response is, Pastor, there's no problem. I'm fine. I'm fine. And we both know, we both know there is a problem. Some people, though, are insistent on giving me a bogus answer to blow me off so as not to address that problem. That's a form of defense mechanism. Defending themselves in order to protect themselves from perceived possible rejection. And for the record, I don't reject anyone. There's a second defense mechanism mentioned here. It's Tobiah's turn in verse 3. Verse 3, now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. I mean, he's sitting right there beside um, Sambalad. And he said, whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Now Tobiah has manifested a second form of defense mechanism called identification. Identification. Notice the definition. Identification is where someone identifies himself with someone else in order to better his position with that person. Identification is where someone identifies himself with someone else primarily in order to better him, his position with that person. Sanballat had just ridiculed Nehemiah's men. We just read that. So T Tobiah started identifying himself with Sanballat. He joined him. He joined him and started doing the same thing. He joined in that ridicule. Notice what T Tobias said. Tobias said that this wall, those construction workers were building, was so fragile, so fragile, that if a fox jumped, climbed up onto that wall, it would literally break apart and collapse. Now think through that. An average male fox weighs no more than 12 to 13 pounds. That wall consisted of solid lumber beams of lumber and stone. So that small amount a fox would weigh couldn't possibly cause the collapse of that wall. 
God had His sovereign hand on the structural design of this reconstruction around Jerusalem. And God doesn't make junk. This was going to be a strong, fortified wall that would give them more than adequate protection. That statement from Tobiah was absolute and utter foolishness. A fox would cause the devastation of that rebuilt wall. Why would he make such an absurd statement? Because of this identification principle. Tobiah sitting right there beside Sembalad. Sembalad's mouthing off in ridicule. And so Tobiah said what he said to agree with him in order to better his position with Sembalad. He was what we would call a yes man. He agreed with Sembalad and reinforced what Sembalad said primarily because he wanted to better his standing with Sembalad. He was stroking Sembalad's ego. And at the same time, he probably was positioning himself for a promotion. A smart leader, a smart manager, knows better than to surround himself with yes-men. That's a dangerous thing to do. Because a yes-man might conceal what this person needs to hear and just give him what he wants to hear so that he can gain more acceptance with him. We have a board of elders. We do not have yes-men. If you sat in our meetings, you would understand. There are pros, there are cons, there's back and forth, there's debate. There's controversy we discuss. No, we, we don't, I don't want yes-men, a bunch of yes-men. Uh, that can be counterproductive. Someone that leads needs men and women that are honest enough to share, in a respectful sense, their sincere opinion. He needs someone that is committed to him, someone on his side, someone a part of his team, and someone that will fight for him if necessary, but someone that will also challenge him to reconsider some of his decisions because there is no one person that has all the answers. There is no one person who is right in all situations, no matter how unusual and gifted that person might be. He needs to surround himself with the people who, out of concern for him, will challenge him if he is in error. And if he doesn't have people that are honest with him, and just tell him what he wants to hear, then chances are he goes off unchecked and brings the whole bunch of them on a long walk off the end of a short pier. Not good. So Tobiah was a classic yes-man. Some of us remember, some of us that are older remember Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. Remember them? I'm sorry, I used to call her Tammy Faye Faker because everything was fake. Everything was just fake. Seriously. Um, uh, Tammy died in 2007. Uh, Jim and Tammy Baker were part of the infamous PTL scandal. PTL means praise the Lord. Jim Baker was convicted on 24 counts of fraud and conspiracy. He served five years in prison. I might add his original sentence was 45 years. He got off easy. He also paid a half million dollar fine. And after his release, he owed the IRS six million dollars. He has since remarried and now has another television program from Branson, Missouri. I've seen it. He claims he has renounced that false doctrine of prosperity theology, but um, some of his teaching is still suspect, so he can't be trusted. But Mr. Baker admitted that as the former head of the PTL empire, he admitted that he purposely, intentionally, surrounded himself with yes-men. He hired only yes-men. 
um, he would dismiss any staff member that had a strong disagreement with him. He only wanted people to tell him how great he was, how great he was doing, and that he was right. One of the reasons Jim Baker fell into moral and financial disgrace is because he had no one to be accountable to. Since his board and his staff consisted entirely of yes-men, and I'm using that in a generic sense, yes-men and women, he had no one to check his wrong motives. He had no one that would second-guess him. He had no one that would question him. And as a result, he self-destructed, and so did his empire. Nehemiah had his share of outspoken critics. Sambalad and Tobiah were both extremely critical of Nehemiah. Criticism comes in two basic forms. One of those forms is beneficial and good, and the other one is harmful and isn't good at all. Form number one is constructive criticism. Constructive criticism. Um, Notice the definition. Constructive criticism is criticism that is intended to benefit someone. Someone approached me after the first service. I mispronounced a word in the first service um, and uh, said, well, we're going to video the second. That'll be up on the online and you may want to say it the word like it's supposed to be said um he wanted to help that was good i needed that the problem is i don't even know what i say half the time so i have to be corrected okay i mean seriously um parents should give constructive criticism to their children uh remember we are commanded not to exasperate our children so the criticism needs to be appropriate and constructive Pastors should give constructive criticism to their constituents, congregants. Coaches should give constructive criticism to their teams. Teachers should give constructive criticism to their students. Those people and more people like them use different forms of constructive criticism as a means of teaching and discipling and coaching and mentoring. Uh, I attended a Christian university, undergraduate university, Uh, that is now the only true uh, polytechnical Christian university in the U.S., Eternal University, located in East Texas. I highly recommend it if someone wants to go into engineering. And before I finished an undergraduate degree in engineering, I enrolled in a homiletics class. Homiletics is the science and art of biblical preaching. Uh, I had just determined after a nine-month period of agonizing introspection and seeking God. I had just determined God wanted me to pursue a career in public ministry. He wanted me to pastor. So knowing that, that was the objective now. Uh, Even though I was going to finish up my degree, I wasn't far from that. Uh, I knew I needed to learn how to preach. So in that class, we were required as students, each of us, to prepare miniature 15-minute sermons. Imagine that. 15-minute sermon. Um, and, and we were required to prepare them and then preach them in class to the entire class. Now, the other students would sit there as we preached and take notes on us, extensive notes, and uh, then afterwards the class would critique us. Critiquing is another form of constructive criticism. The professor was a gentleman named Harold Fleming. Um, I thought he was great. 
He uh, had taught speech and debate at Southern Methodist University before moving to teach at our school. I stayed after class all the time to talk to him. I interacted with him as often as I could. He was a Presbyterian pastor. Uh, He was extremely knowledgeable, and he was just just great. Uh, I'm assuming he's probably in heaven now. But um, after we would preach our sermons, uh, uh, Professor Fleming would stand up and tell the class, okay, talk to me. All right, talk to me. Tell me about what you just heard. And, and, and the students would offer critique. Uh, no one's comments were brutal. No one said, that stunk up the neighborhood. Nobody said that because they knew they had to do the same thing. But, but they were some serious feedback and some insightful critique. But it was all constructive in nature because it was intended to benefit us so we could mature in our preaching. And just for the record, I only received a B in that particular class. So this church didn't exactly hire the best and the brightest. I'm so sorry. So sorry. In graduate school, I got an A, though. Anyway, um, one of the reasons that we did that in that class is because people are under the assumption, we've all heard this, practice makes perfect. Right? Practice makes perfect. No, it doesn't. Practice makes permanent. Practice makes permanent. It doesn't matter if I practice something a thousand times. If no one critiques me during that practicing, if no one points out some flaws and errors and mistakes and corrects me during that practicing, then that repetition is just going to create in me a bad habit. If I continue to practice something wrong, then I just become more consistent and more proficient at doing it wrong. Practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. And that's one of the reasons we can all benefit from constructive criticism. Constructive criticism helps someone become a better athlete, a better marriage partner, a better parent, a better student, a better employee, a better friend, a better Christian, a better all-around person. But there's a second form of criticism, and that is destructive criticism. Destructive criticism um, is intended to cause harm to someone, harm of some form to someone. Actor Denzel Washington made this statement, and he's commenting not on constructive criticism. He's commenting on destructive criticism. Listen to this. Denzel Washington, who I might add professes to be a Christian, Uh, I've heard his testimony. He made this statement, you'll never be criticized by someone doing more than you. You'll always be criticized by someone doing less. Some anonymous person made this similar quotation, famous. I despise those guys who minimize and criticize those other guys whose enterprises help them rise above those guys who criticize. I cannot say that ten times in a row. Um, But what that means is individuals that criticize from a destructive perspective are often envious and jealous of the person they are critical of. These people are criticizing those persons that have advanced above them, are more successful than them, and out of pure enviousness, they are critical of them, and in doing that, demote them and demean them in the minds of the people that listen to their criticism. The intention on the part of the critic is to inflict emotional hurt 
and harm on the one that is criticized. That is destructive criticism. The question that is begging for an answer, though, is this. How was someone able to determine if, in fact, the criticism we're receiving is constructive or destructive in nature? How do we differentiate between them? Is the criticism we're hearing constructive or destructive? The answer to that question is found in two easy-to-remember distinct parts. Number one, step one, is to consider the source. Consider the source. We should always consider the source of the criticism. Who is this critic? Just where is this criticism coming from? That's the reason. If I receive some criticism secondhand, meaning someone comes to me and say, I think you should know this person said this about you. Um, I want to know the name of the critic. I want to know who said that. Not so I can punch them in the face. That is not my intent. I want to know the identification of this critical person because nine times out of ten, the origin of the critic, criticism, the critic himself, can tell me what sort of criticism it is. In Nehemiah's case, it was apparent the source of the criticism coming at him came from men that did not have his best interest in mind. These men wanted to shut the project down. I mean, if Sanballat and Tobiah were his friends, then who needs enemies? These men didn't care for Nehemiah, and so this was destructive criticism. Notice Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. That last phrase reminds me of the kiss Jesus received in the garden from Judas the night he was arrested. Notice that Solomon said, faithful are the wounds of a friend. That means wounds from a friend can be trusted. Solomon uses the words wounds in describing someone's criticism, meaning criticism can often inflict pain, just as a wound or injury would cause someone pain and discomfort. The fact is criticism hurts. Criticism hurts. And there are four times when criticism especially hurts. One, criticism hurts when it comes from someone in authority over us. The reason is we are accountable to that authority. That could be our boss. And we don't want that person to be disappointed in us. It's embarrassing. And besides, it could have a negative result, such as being written up or even terminated. Two, criticism hurts when it questions our motives. When it questions our motives. Now for me, this is the time that criticism hurts the most. It is so upsetting to hear someone critical of me and that criticism has completely misjudged my intentions and motives. That is super upsetting because that person doesn't know my heart. In fact, at the judgment seat of Christ, I'll be vindicated. I'll find that person in the crowd. Say, see, 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 I told you. I was sincere. You were wrong. Okay, maybe that won't happen. All right, number three. Criticism hurts when it comes from people that have known us for a long time. From long-standing relationships, criticism from those people definitely hurt. Friends fit into that grouping. 
a friend, if he cares, will criticize, offer constructive criticism, but it still hurts. Four, criticism hurts when it is continuous. Continuous. Even constructive criticism intended for our benefit. We had a gentleman here, I'm not going to name him. He's no longer here, he moved out of state. I mean, after every sermon, every Sunday morning, he had to tell me something that I didn't say that he felt was off base or I didn't say it right or wasn't correct. I mean, all the time. I mean, he meant well. He, had, he meant well. He wanted to help me improve and be better. Um, but it was relentless. It was constant. And uh, I can remember one Sunday I got out and I said, well, guess what I have to say about that sermon now? And I go, man, I don't even know. I don't even know. He said it was great. I said, whoa, man, I can't believe that. <laughs> but even constructive criticism, if it's nonstop, if it's constant, if it's relentless, will ultimately beat someone down. It's like, I can't get this thing right. It hurts. Solomon said that if a friend criticizes us, it could hurt and bring emotional pain and grief, just as a wound would. But, since that critic is a friend, he can be trusted to care about us. He can be trusted to have sincere motives. And his sole intention is to help us. Therefore, his criticism is considered constructive. Consider the source. Let me add this. If I'm criticized to my face, if someone says to me, Pastor, can I talk to you in private? Yeah, we go into my office, shut the door, sit down. And he shares his heart about something he sees that I need to correct, maybe a blind spot I had. I appreciate that. Um, I consider all criticism, no matter what that criticism might consist of, constructive or destructive, but I know in that case it's constructive because he cared enough to bring it to me. Most of the criticism, though, that is exchanged behind my back that I hear about through the grapevine is more often destructive in nature. If it were constructive, it would have been brought to me in person, but it wasn't. So step one is to consider the source. Step two is to consider the slant. Consider the source, consider the slant. Constructive criticism comes from a more positive slant and perspective. Example, uh, during the lockdown, which is crazy to me that we're still in this, and that COVID is still in our congregation. Fortunately, no one has been hospitalized, uh, nothing serious at this juncture, um, but it's still here. It's mind-boggling to me that we're still wearing masks, or some of us are wearing masks. I only wear a mask when I can wear a chief's mask because I need to advertise my team. Anyway, pray for the chiefs. It kickoffs in 20 minutes. Anyway, um, not, th- not that it matters. It really... Yeah. By the way, if you saw the game last Sunday night, greatest game in history right there, if you saw that game. Okay, I digress. That was not part of the... Yeah. But during the lockdown, we were forced to cancel public services, nine consecutive Sundays. And then we had another two Sundays in the fall we had to cancel. But I brought a series from Revelation on the state of the church. And uh, it was from Revelation chapters 2 and 3 on the seven messages, actual letters, from Jesus himself to the seven churches in ancient Asia Minor. Asia Minor is located in what is now western modern Turkey. Now, in reading 
those messages to those congregations, Jesus gave each congregation a performance review. It's very interesting. He literally evaluated them and gave them a performance review. And he was critical of each of them except the churches at Smyrna and Philadelphia. He had nothing negative to say about those congregations. Each of them received good marks. Jesus, though, did criticize the other five congregations at Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Laodicea. But we know his criticism toward them was constructive in nature. How do we know? Because in those letters to those churches he was critical of, after he criticized them, he then gave them a solution to that problem he just mentioned. He pointed out an error. In some cases it was false doctrine. He pointed out an error, and then he said, okay, but we can fix this. Here's the solution. So we know, based on that, that his slant was constructive. He wanted them to be better, to improve. The slant on his criticism was ultimately positive. Now, if his criticism had been from a negative slant, then he would have not mentioned a solution. He would have just pointed out the problem. And that was the end. But he didn't. In order to be beneficial, the critic needs to mention the person's problem and then suggest a solution if he cares and he wants the betterment for that person and or congregation. The question is, how did Nehemiah handle all that criticism that had been brought against him? It was apparent that um, this was destructive criticism that was not intended for his benefit. Uh, it was intended to discourage and defeat him so that he and his men would give up and stop that construction project. So how did Nehemiah respond to those critics? The answer is, he didn't. Nehemiah didn't answer his critics per se. He didn't. Now that was most unusual because most of us tend to react and overreact to personal criticism. I read where an indignant boss rushed into the office of Edward Everett Hale. This boss was all upset. He was angered over some criticism that he had read about himself in the morning newspaper. He was upset at this writer because he said some unflattering things about him. Now, Mr. Hale, if that name is unfamiliar, was a 19th century historian and author. His most famous work was The Man Without a Country. Um, so Mr. Hale, seeing this man come in all upset, said to, his, to this boss, Now calm yourself. Don't be so upset. This man said, And why shouldn't I be upset? Did you read what he said about me? He was, it was terrible. And Hale responded, Listen carefully. It's very simple. Not half the people in this city take that paper. Not half of those people that take that paper actually read that paper. Not half of those persons that do read that paper actually saw that particular item. Not half of those that read that statement believed it. And not half of those that believed it are of any consequence. Edgar Hale put the situation into a more reasonable perspective so as to encourage this man not to overreact to that critical article. Both Sambalad and Tobiah were extremely critical of Nehemiah, but no one, notice Nehemiah didn't answer them per se. 
Another reason that this is an unusual reaction is because leaders, such as Nehemiah, tend to be strong-willed personalities. And as a general rule, a strong individual's first reaction to personal criticism is to retaliate. It was said about our former president, by his wife, if you punch him once, he's going to punch you back ten times harder. That is not a biblical technique. It is not. That is not what Jesus said when he said, turn the cheek which was all in the context of a verbal retaliation. There are times someone has to answer his critics. It must be done. Paul did that. He authored an entire New Testament book in order to defend himself against critics that argued he wasn't a legitimate apostle. And he was. That book is 2 Corinthians. That book was written to answer his critics. Sometimes a man will have to respond to his critics in order to add clarification to something so that these men and or women don't continue to spread misinformation. Uh, sometimes he has to answer his critics to clear up confusion that some people might have. Sometimes it's not wrong to answer our critics and address the criticism that is aimed against us, but it's not appropriate. It is not appropriate for someone that has been criticized to verbally then just retaliate against our critics. According to Jesus, we're to love them, which isn't easy to do. Although we should listen to all criticism, and especially consider beneficial constructive criticism, we are to be careful about responding to criticism that might be destructive in nature. Abraham Lincoln once said this, If I tried to read, much less answer, all the criticisms made of me and all the attacks leveled at me, this office of the presidency would have been closed for all other business. I do the best I know how. I do the very best I can. And I mean to keep on doing that down to the very end. If the end brings me out all wrong, ten angels swearing I have been right would make no difference. If the end brings me out all right, then what is said against me now would not amount to anything. Those are wise words from a wise man. Nehemiah didn't answer his critics, but he did address that criticism, as we're going to see next time. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we have all been the recipient of criticism, both constructive and destructive, I'm certain. And we have all, if we would admit it, have been the critic. And it is appropriate sometimes to be the critic. Very appropriate. But help us to be careful. Help us to criticize, if we do, from a constructive uh, motive, from a positive slant, and to be respectful toward that person with which we find fault. Um, it's so easy to want to retaliate, get upset. That is not a part of your program at all. And so God help us as we receive criticism, to differentiate between that which is intended to help and benefit us and that which is intended to hurt us, even that which is intended to hurt us. Help us to listen to that because you can even use someone who has less than a sincere motive to speak to us and bring to us a message from yourself. So we just commit this message to you. I pray it will make a difference. Help us to take it home and put it into practice. And I thank you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.